1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15%
0: off at burrowcom slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree. That's amazon.com slash news ad free To catch up on the latest episodes Without the ads
2: Most of the time This week's Conservative Conference Has looked like a chaotic gathering Of populists and conspiracy theorists Rishi Sunak's big speech Was a much more measured affair And he finally confirmed the end of
3: the northern leg Of HS2 And so I am ending this long running song the rest of the HS2 project.
2: But maybe the great bursts of Tory extremism that came before his speech are what we ought to be talking about.
4: Let's make Britain grow again. Thank you.
2: What most burned through what happened this week in Manchester wasn't about the next election, but the long-term future of a party that seems to be speeding towards the hard political right. I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. I'm joined today by The Guardian columnist, Gabby Hinsliff. Hello, Gabby. Hello, John. Right, let's talk about Rishi Sunak's speech, first of all. Um, To me, it felt like a a somewhat long-winded fusion of the kind of populism, shameless populism, we've heard over the last three days. It mixed that with the sort of technocratic delivery-based politics Rishi Sunak thinks is his personal brand. So it wasn't as out there as Suella Braverman and Liz Truss, but one of the basic messages he wanted people to hear was politics has gone wrong and there are things that the elite has pushed on you, like HS2 and more and more kids going to university and wokeness, and I am here to avenge those things. I mean, his speech was full of howling contradictions, political speeches always are, but because this wasn't the Suella Bravman or Lee Anderson version of, of modern conservatism, I suppose there were moments in that speech where I thought this might be convincing.
4: I think it was quite authentically... Sunak, that bit they they got right. I think they've kind of caught who he is and kind of bottled it for public consumption, which is you know, clean living, family man, bit spreadsheety. Uh, doesn't like money it's being rich, wasted yeah. bit nerdy very keen on maths and people not starting to smoke you know they absolutely there's this convincing persona there i think the argument of the speech was the problem because if you're trying to argue and he was he was trying to sort of acknowledge that people are really fed up with this government they want to change you know in that circumstances normally uh, you're toast and he's trying to argue no really we are the change vote for the same old party and you can still get a change but then failing to articulate what that change is is yeah, and yeah. how it relates to what people are fed up with. I mean, if, if I don't think people are not voting conservative now because they are outraged that they haven't got around to A-level reform in the last 13 years. You know, that is not what people are angry about. So to say, I know you're angry, but I'm not going to talk about why you're angry at all. In fact, I'm not going to mention anything about the last 13 years in power. I'm just going to talk quite a lot about Margaret Thatcher and then about things I'm interested in. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm really interested in maths. You know, that is not... You're not listening to or reflecting what people are saying, and that I thought was the problem.
2: Very telling as well, really. Never mind the last 13 years, even the last 13 months, there was very little, almost nothing in this speech of any substance about the cost of living crisis, was there? He didn't, I mean, inflation he talked about, but he didn't really go in any big visceral rhetorical way on how much people are suffering.
4: I didn't expect him to go on people are suffering because that, you know, immediately leads to the question, oh, that's your fault. But, you know, normally you get at least a sort of token, I get that times are hard, I get that people are finding it tough.
2: Let's talk about HS2 and more specifically the cancellation of the Birmingham to Manchester leg of it, which Rishi Sunak says will free up Billions and billions of pounds to spend on transport projects across the Midlands and North. This is what he said in his speech.
3: HS2 is the ultimate example of the old consensus. The result is a project whose costs have more than doubled, which has been repeatedly delayed, and it is not scheduled to reach here in Manchester for almost two decades, and for which the economic case has massively been weakened with the changes to business travel post-Covid. I say to those who backed the project in the first place, the facts have changed. And the right thing to do when the facts change is to have the courage to change direction.
2: Now, Gabby, as we both know, some Conservatives, Andy Street, the Conservative Mayor of the West Midlands, is a good example, and also people uh, elsewhere in politics, like Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, uh, have greeted that cancellation, which has been sort of bubbling through all week in terms of speculation, with great howls of pain, which are understandable. But in terms of politics, I don't know. I heard what he said there, the idea that I'm cancelling this big white elephant and I'm going to spend the money on much more effective stuff that you're really going to feel the benefit of.
4: Pretty effective, I thought. I think they've found a way of packaging it that if you're listening to it sat on the six o'clock news, sat at home in Doncaster, you know, you can see the logic of what he's saying, which is we were spending billions on this. It's not really delivering value for money. We can do it. We can do it better now. If you were sort of, if you were Andy Street or if you were Andy Burnham or if you were David Cameron or if you were all the other people who are against it, you would say you don't get the same economic bang for buck by doing little bits of improvement in piecemeal all over the country that you do from linking up three major cities and, and you know, making that a sort of total transformation of your economic strategy. So it's not the same thing that you're getting for the money. But it gives MPs all over the country in Conservative seats something to put on their election (gasps) leaflets. There's going to be a bypass. Leafletism. You You know, great. Um, Coming into an election, I can see the logic of that. Uh, What I didn't hear and what I think we'll have to really watch for in the autumn statement is timeframes on any of this because perish the thought that anyone would do something so cynical as to cancel a really expensive project pocket the money from that for a couple of years so that you can give some of it away at the election and then spend it like quite a long way down the line on all these things that have now been promised.
2: There are elements of it that are worse than that. It's not just about wait and let's see if the, if the money materializes that these things actually get done. Some of them were meant to have been done ages ago. So when he talked about upgrading the train line between Manchester and Hull, as I understand it, that's been kicking around for about a decade and people's expectations have been ratcheted up and then they've come back down again, you know. So to return to it, you know, almost feels like adding insult to injury, really.
4: Some of these are going to be very familiar, put it that way. They're things that were supposed to be already happening and had been parked and are now going to be unparked. things like that. So I think probably in terms of... (sighs) how that was presented and how that, at least they've got a case they can sell now. You know, they've been through the worst of the criticism, the worst of the objections probably that can be thrown at them. And they've got a plausible story to tell about it, I would say. Yeah. you know, and, and people who thought it was an awful decision will continue to think it's an awful decision. But I don't think it's necessarily going to, you know, it's not going to make a huge difference compared to where, where they already are in the polls. It's,
2: it's one of those both things can be true examples isn't it which politics is often full of in the sense that what this result on is absolutely ludicrous which is a high-speed train built to go at 200 miles an hour once it gets to Birmingham slowing down to 70 or 80 and then crawling its way to Manchester I mean it was comical he kept he did kept saying and there's more and there's more when he was reeling off this great list of future transport projects it was it was a bit like him trying to be Boris Johnson and obviously he's no Boris Johnson he can't do it but when he talked about oh you know upgrading the line between Manchester and Liverpool, building the Midlands rail hub, West Midlands Metro, the Leeds tram, the A1, the A2, the A5, the M6, the Don Valley line, the Energy Coast line between Carlisle, Workington, and Barrow, on and on it went. That was that was like a like a bad school play about Boris Johnson. I thought.
4: No, oh, I didn't. I didn't actually. I didn't really get a Johnson, a Johnson <laughs> vibe from that all week. I suppose what I've been <laughs> it pains me to say it, but all week I've been noticing. I wouldn't say I miss Boris Johnson. I don't think I would ever say I miss Boris Johnson. But you do notice, you know, where he was on net zero, where he was on, you know, gay rights, which government's totally, you know, turned 360 degrees on really in in two years where he was on spending public money. You know, it's it's very different than the current climate in number 10.
2: The big frame or the attempted big frame for this speech was this idea that politics went wrong 30 years ago. And belatedly he's come along to put it right. And obviously one's brain then starts ticking and you think, nineteen ninety three? What what happened in nineteen ninety three? But what he really means is it all went wrong once we throw Mrs. Thatcher out the window. That's what he means, isn't it?
4: So I presume so, or or maybe, you know, because I was thinking, what the hell happened in 1993? I mean, Jesus, you know, was it take that thing on top of the charts? Come on, feel the lemon heads. You know, come on, could be. Um, or But it was probably the only thing that happened that year of any political note was the Norman <laughs> Lamont post-election budget where all where taxes went up. And that is a big thing for Tories of a certain age and generation, although I wouldn't necessarily have said, you know, Registein acts a bit young for that. So it just feels like, you know, it. it feels like he's thinking about... After the ninety-two election, it was kind of all downhill ever since. Somehow, but it was a weird thing because he kept saying thirty years, and then not not explaining what he meant by that. And it just made me think: the more times he referred to thirty years, the more times I kept thinking, mm, "What about the last thirteen years? That, that's the bit we're not talking about. Why are we not? Ta- what years. could have happened thirteen years ago that we don't wish to discuss? You know." And it was just. Weird how much they both, you know, not just him, but Penny Morden, when she was doing the warm-up speech, it was all about, you know, <laughs> Thatcher, Churchill, can we have a shout-out for Norman Tebbit, the 80s striking <laughs> miners. And you're just like, Penny Morden's barely old enough to remember that. Yeah, you yeah, know,
2: she wasn't around. It wasn't weird. Yeah, so it's a peculiar thing. Also, if you're incumbent and you've and you've been incumbent for 13 years, trying to position yourself as the party of change risks being inherently ludicrous. Let's be honest. That's the point.
4: It is just odd. It's not just that; it's that to have nothing that you want to talk about from the last thirteen years. That's I mean, true. usually speeches are like a big list of here's all the brilliant things we've done this year, you know. And there, there really was very little of that.
2: Thirty years of hurt never stopped them dreaming. Um, I began to wonder whether, in terms of sort of choreography and stage management, letting Samella Braverman, for example, uh, appear the day before he did, and sort of giving people like Lee Anderson. Carte blanche to go and tore the fringe and sound off and cause outrage was a way then of him emphasizing this much more sort of business like, spreadsheety, sensible kind of politics.
4: I think you definitely did see a sort of clean schism between, in his speech, for example, he said that he would do whatever is necessary to stop small boats. And that was it. End of sentence, move on. He did not elaborate on what that meant. And that allowed him to kind of leave vaguely open the idea that he uh, agrees with everything Suella says, agree. Vaguely open with the idea that he wouldn't go quite as far. Whatever you want that to be, you could imagine that was. And she had said what you know government wants to be said, so he didn't kind of have to get his hands dirty with that. But as for his trust, I don't think you could stop her popping up even if you you wanted to. But you did get the feeling it's been a conference of two halves, and there's been this sort of very kind of GB newsy element that you know just goes around competing with each other, saying mad things on the fringe and and feels like it's in opposition already, really. It's kind of got that feeling of, so we're just shouting into the void. And then you've got Rishi Sunak, who is still governing, but at this stage, more or less by himself, while the rest of the party is kind of doing its own thing. And the, the Suela message is designed for a certain audience. His message is designed for a different audience. His message is really designed for what's left of, you know, Surrey Tories. But it, it, it the whole thing, trying to mesh those things together in one place feels just like a mess. How are these two halves of the party even really the same party now, because it doesn't feel like they are. You know, it feels like you've got two separate parties. That's
2: the main contrast that struck me, really. Watching that and then having seen, in Manchester, Jeremy Hunt's 14-minute conference speech. (laughs) The contrast between that image they're trying to put out and then all of this sort of chaos and lunacy, embodied forever in my mind by Priti Patel and Nigel Farage dancing around... Bellowing, can't take my eyes off you, which everybody listening to this podcast will doubtless have seen. Right, there's the two bits you weren't going to catch. Rishi, weren't going to catch Rishi Sunak doing that. Um, no. His wife introduced his speech. Akshata Murphy came on stage.
4: The reason why I'm here is really quite simple, and it's because Rishi and I are each other's best friends. We're one team. And I could not imagine being anywhere else but here today with all of you to show my support to him and to the party.
2: Obviously not the first time that's happened. The Labour Party historically occasionally has been fond of that. Gordon Brown's wife Sarah came on and introduced him in Manchester. I can recall watching that. What did you
4: think of that? I mean, it's a bit old-fashioned and retrograde in terms of gender politics, isn't it? I first, it immediately reminded me of Sarah Brown doing it and and why Sarah Brown did it that year, which was that he was on the back foot. The pong was terrible. He was very beleaguered. It almost felt like if he came on stage, he might be met with a chorus of boos. And it was like Sarah going on first, someone who no one was ever going to shout at, was meant to make you feel protective or warm towards him. And so when, when Sharda came up, it was like, oh my God, things are worse for Rishi Sunak than we thought. <laughs> He's had to have his wife out there as a kind of human shield first. She did it very well, very fluently, you know, fair play to her. But it was a bit kind of, she's my best friend. And, you know, he's he's so lovely and he's my lovely husband.
2: But she was trying to humanise the spreadsheet, wasn't she? That's what she was there for.
4: It did feel a little bit old-fashioned. I wondered as well if it might come back to haunt her because now that she's... You know, if you do the speech, you become a political figure. You become more public than you have before. You become more fair game than you have before. And I just wonder if, you know, anybody wanted a green light to crawl all over her um, tax affairs or her financial interests, she's very much given people cover to do that.
2: That's true. And describing her as the best long-term decision for a brighter future I made which was very Alan Partridge golf club bar, wasn't it really? I thought that was beyond cringe.
4: I, yeah, I, I I feel it was lacking in romance. I mean, it, the, there are worse conference slogans you could have epitomised with your wife, I suppose. Forwards, not back. Um, no, I yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great. Just just on the whole, do not ever describe your wife as an excellent long term investment. I feel
2: really don't. Right, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we will be talking about what happened behind the scenes at conference and whether the radical right might, as it looks like, be taking over the Conservative Party. Welcome back. I went to my first party conference a long, long time ago, in 1986 when I was 16. I wasn't a journalist. It was the Labour Party conference. I've been going to Conservative Party conferences, I think, for 16 or 17 years.
4: Part-timer.
2: Part-timer. When was your first Tory conference?
4: 1997.
2: Yes. Well, I can't compete with that. But this time, Conservative Conference felt very different to me. I felt I was in the midst of a sort of very right-wing political convention full of the sort of politics that you see uh, online and in outlets like GB News, full of sort of righteous fury, (laughs) outright bigotry sometimes, lots and lots of conspiracy theory. It was quite striking to be in that kind of atmosphere. Um, We spent a lot of Monday uh, sampling what was going on, and this is what we found. Are you annoyed by 20 mile an hour speed limits as a rule? Are you a motorist? Uh, Yeah, I drive. drive. Would you describe yourself as a motorist? I don't think anyone would naturally say they're a motorist, would they? No, it's, would. Just, it's Any driving more than a... I'm an ovenist, because I've got an oven, or a fridgest, because um, I've got a fridge.
3: I personally don't see the point in installing 20 mile an hour limits everywhere.
2: Saves but. kids' lives.
3: But that's what happened when we dropped
2: it from 40 to 30.
3: We had the same argument then.
2: Yeah, you save even think, more if you drop it from 30 to 20.
3: I think there's a lot of areas where you're installing it and it's not making a difference, to be honest.
2: If on the proverbial doorstep, someone says, "What have I got to show for the last 13 years?" What's the answer?
4: Um, well, we've recovered very quickly from the pandemic. A lot of countries are not in the same economic position that we are. Our infrastructure is actually not as bad as people make it out to be. Like we are, we're growing in the north. Yeah, I thought you were cancelling HST in the north. Well, the north for me is like Newcastle, so HST does not affect us up there. I think we need to stop the boats. I think that's a big issue in a lot of our Brexit central sort of seats. Where I am in Kent, right, you know, some of the boats are washing up and people are really, really unhappy. But at the same time, we can see that we're trying to make an effort to stop things and stop all of the illegal migrants coming. But I think they're, they're needs not illegal migrants.
2: In fairness, just to make that clear, they're, re- they're refugees.
4: We have different opinions, but I can understand it. I can appreciate your perspective. For me, but I they're not, it,
2: Are people claiming asylum in an asylum system that doesn't work? The, cha- but there's
4: other channels they can go
2: through. Yeah. Mr. Bell. It's not just the activists in the hall talking about culture war issues. Veteran Tory MP Peter Bowen also sees the use of them. What they've got to do, the top, the leadership, have got to announce a whole raft of policies that will take us into the general election. And actually, maybe the changes to, not the targets to Net Zero, but how we're going to get there, has helped us. And maybe, you know, saying we're going to look after motorists rather than... A war on motors is good. It's, it's unusual. I think this party conference perhaps met- well, matters un- but it's maybe unusual because the overwhelming feeling is it's it's over, right? No no it's only yeah. the guardian that think that. No no the opinion polls say oh, that. In well, exactly. It's this the government truth. and your party is having a bad time, right? There's a there's a lot for you to get out from under. Oh, right? Well if you come look, come come have one week, come down to Wellingham, knock on the doors and you actually hear what real people are saying. In the queue for a coffee, we spot another Tory MP, Danny Kruger, a one-time David Cameron aide, now viewed as one of the party's prominent right-wing voices. Yeah, go on then. Can you win the next election? Not you personally, the, the <laughs> government and the Conservative Party.
3: I think we can win if we remember who put us into power in 2019, which is a coalition of voters from the Tory heartlands, but also the new voters in the Red Wall in the Midlands and the North. And they're still waiting for us to deliver for them they haven't switched to labour yet and
2: all the noise about cancelling the northern leg of HS2 looks like the reverse of what you've just said doesn't it it does go against any any sort of solid notion of levelling up doesn't it well
3: levelling up is about more than just HS2 fundamentally it's about a set of economic and cultural changes that the public voted for in 2019 okay they still have a chance to, to do that two
2: things specifically then that are lacking that you would like to see and then I'll leave you alone
3: I'd like to see us deliver on our commitment to reduce migration below the levels that we inherited in 2019. I'd like us to invest in skills rather than in pointless higher education degrees. And I'd like us to get divisive gender ideology out of schools.
2: OK. Thank you very much. Leave Great. All right, John. Thanks. So that's the politics of the culture war there with Danny Kruger, the MP for Devices. That's national conservatism talking there, yeah. Yeah, I think he'd like to think he's more uh, on a slightly more philosophical, elevated level than Suella Bradman. But up close, the politics isn't that different. And they're disgruntled. I think they see Sunak, I mean, weird as this may sound, as being a sort of lily-livered liberal. (laughs) Kieran Stacey, Guardian political correspondent. Here's a question. So we, we've been around talking to activists and MPs, most of whom, inevitably, put a brave face on and say we can still win. The public don't like Keir Starmer. There's still everything to play for.
3: Underneath that, what's the feeling like here? Yeah, well, let, let's look around us. I mean, we're in the middle of the conference venue. We're amid all the stalls and there's almost no one around. Last night I was down at the hotel bar. Usually you cannot move oh, yeah, for being yeah. jostled by activists and lobbyists and just this sense of this is where the power's at. That just doesn't exist at this conference. Half the people that you would expect to be here are not here. Very senior business executives have not turned up today for business day. So I think, you know, even if the people, and you've been talking to people around the venue today, even if they're telling you, yeah, yeah we're upbeat, we're upbeat, we're up for it. I'd love to hear from the people who aren't here. What do they think? Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the bigger point, isn't it? The people who stayed away. They're running out of time, is definitely how it feels. I'd just add one caveat, which is don't completely write them off. Yeah,
2: I was going to say that. Yeah.
3: Because that, uh, that's the thing, isn't it? A, it's the Conservative Party,
2: and B, politics doesn't work like that anyway, right? And you—and only a fool would stand there and talk about 100% certainty that the Conservatives are going to lose the next election.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. I was talking to uh, somebody at Number 10 last night, and... This is somebody I know and trust and I, I don't think they were bullshitting me when they said we genuinely think we can not only win in a hung parliament, we can win a majority. I was, I was really taken aback by that. But they think they've got a path to a majority. There's another sort of indicator that things are not
2: as the party managers would like them to be at this conference, which is that one of the biggest hits on the
3: fringe today has been Liz Truss. <laughs> Liz Truss not only had 400 people queuing to get into her event, but afterwards was mobbed by supporters, was handed a copy of her mini budget, and signed the front cover of it. <laughs> Imagine that. This is the mood of this conference. They <laughs> want her to sign the mini budget.
2: I can't think of an analogy for that, can you? Uh, like, I've... Here's, this, here's this thing, you know, here's the, here's the disaster you authored. Will you autograph it for me? It's worse than here's your flop album that no
3: one bought. It's worse, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a piece of cult memorabilia now on the, <laughs> on the Tory fringes. But if the party is full of people who want Liz Trust to sign
2: a mini budget, right, that reckoning won't happen. And the likelihood is actually that Tory politics will
3: get even further out, right? Yeah, I think that that feels like where it's at, at the moment. So you've got Kemi Badenoch, you've got Swella Braverman auditioning basically to take the party in that rightwards direction. And, and the assumption is that's where we go. Right, I'm back with Gabby now. We both know that. One of
2: the star turns of this conference outside the main hall was the appearance of Liz Truss, who ended up signing copies of a disastrous mini-budget. I've already mentioned pretty Patel and Nigel Farage dancing around to Can't Take My Eyes Off You. Lee Anderson was absolutely omnipresent, the decidedly populist deputy chairman of the Conservative Party. Once you get past Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, this is a party, unquestionably, which is moving at speed to the post-Brexit populist political right, isn't it?
4: it feels like it's being dragged that way. And I think it was always going to feel more that way at conference, because I think if you were a sort of despairing moderate Tory or what we used to call a Cameroon, you probably stayed well away this year, you know, and you probably left it to the circus. And I also think that side of the party is more voluble, they're noisier, they say things that get themselves on the news. They generally are the news. Most of them appear to have programmes on GB News at the moment. And when they sound off at fringe meetings, you don't quite know how much of it is addressed to the audience in the room and how much of it is about ratings chasing for their current shows. So, you know, there's a weird kind of, you know, strange conference going on within a conference. The whole thing feels like sort of giant pantomime horse, where I wouldn't like to say who's the head end and who's the back end, but you know, <laughs> two bits of the party struggling inside the same costume with, with very different ideas about where they ought to be going, and you feel that if the Sunak sort of considered managerialism concept fails at the next election, as it looks rather like it will, well, there's only there's only one thing left at that point, is it? They're not going to go for another considered managerialist.
2: It's amazing politics to behold some of this, because it's sort of revolutionary. It's classic revolutionary politics, where you got nothing wrong. If it went wrong, it's the fault of the people who were against you. you know, you're always right. So the spectacle of Liz Truss popping up you know, exhibiting no remorse or contrition or regret at all and sort of glorying in what happened to her and the fact that she was such a short-lived Prime Minister. Here's a bit of her speaking on the conference, please.
4: So let's stop taxing and banning things. Let's instead build things and make things. Let's be prepared to make Conservative arguments again, even if it's unpopular, even if it's difficult. I want everybody in this room to unleash their inner Conservative. And finally, my friends, let's make Britain grow again. Thank you.
2: I keep reading, Gabby, that she's biding her time and she thinks that at some point, presumably after the imminent Conservative defeat, as and when it happens, she's going to be back, back, back.
4: I mean, if you think how impossible people would once have considered it that Liz Truss could be Tory leader in the first place... And that happened. I mean, at what point does it start being implausible that Liz Truss could be party leader again? You know, I mean, why not in this alternative universe we live in? I don't think that's going to happen. But I do think, you know, the speed with which she has bounced back completely un, um, you know, embarrassed at a time when, you know, in this. In a circumstances where you or I would probably be like still curled into a ball under a duvet refusing to leave the house because you're too mortified about how it all turned out. You know, that's partly just Liz personally. That is what she's like. Failure is not a concept that enters the vocabulary uh, and nor is shame. But it does say something about the party that they're willing to sort of embrace her back. And how much they're doing that as a kind of comic turn, almost, you like never know what she's going to do next and how much they actually mean it. It's hard to say.
2: Oh, no, they mean it. Come on, they mean I it. I think
4: so. I don't know that that's the case. With really I think, think it's an entertainment vic- element to her.
2: But... Also, they project onto her the idea that she was the ultimate victim of the woke blob, right? That she was brought down by these awful forces that this populist strain of conservatism positions itself against. And in that sense, she was a heroic failure and remains.
4: I think there's less a cult, or it always feels to me, there's less a cult of Liz Truss than there is a cult of Boris Johnson that is a kind of, you know, oh, he should never have been overthrown thing. I think what she does very well is articulate something that that part of the party Wants to hear. She talks about things, stuff they're not getting from the current leadership, things they're not saying. Mm-hmm. She appeals, as does Priti Patel, as does Lee Anderson, as does Nigel Farage, who is the weirdest presence at a Conservative Party conference. You know, being not a Conservative, or at least not a Conservative for now, because of course, um, he, you know, inevitably, Sunak was asked, "Would you have him back as an MP?" Because that's the other sort of scenario that you can almost half imagine. You know, if you um, have enough to drink, which is if he, if suppose somehow by some weird mechanism he became a Conservative MP and ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party, would Nigel Farage win? And at the moment, probably (laughs) yes.
2: should be noted that Rishi Sunak refused to rule out allowing Farage back into the party, a party let's not forget that he was a member of in the dim and distant past.
4: It would be like the season finale, you know, the kind of like grand wrap up of this whole drama would be it comes full circle and Nigel Farage becomes leader of the Conservative Party instead of just making the leader of the Conservative Party do what Nigel Farage wants, which has been the pattern since, you know, for about eight years now. (laughs) He wouldn't
2: want to do it, it's too much, too much like hard work Power without responsibility is his style But um, let's talk about someone you mentioned a moment ago Pretty Patel was heard and filmed Paying fulsome tribute to GB News
4: I do also want to welcome some more friends here tonight Our friends that are here The newest, most successful, most dynamic, no-nonsense news station And the defenders of free speech That is my friends at GB News Thank you for everything that you do Incredible. Honestly, just incredible.
2: <laughs> now, one shouldn't laugh, you know. That was proof of the fact that even if its viewing figures aren't that great, that to my mind, that's never the point, right? It's about how much noise it makes generally and what happens when GB News clips get put online and so on. But this wing that we're talking about of the Conservative Party and GB News... Are in absolute lockstep.
4: Yes, I think so, and I think we're starting to see GB News doing I mean, something. I wrote about for the paper this week. So feel quite strongly about it, which is I think we're seeing GB News starting to move into the space that Fox did in the US, which is amplifying, justifying, creating you know that kind of base of voters that supported Trump all the way to the White House, and that could you know be a power base for a populist right wing leader here you know it's open endorsement of conspiracy theories and the extent to which you heard what I found really shocking this year actually was the extent to which you heard very casual references on the conference platform from cabinet ministers to things that are outright conspiracy theories, like you know 15 minute cities is all about the council banning you from going to the shops or kind of you know yeah, this stuff meat
2: taxes yeah,
4: this stuff there's there's something that has always happened in politics which is overhyping or pretending that your opponent is going to do something terrible that they're not really I mean that's very laboured at that in 19 97, with you know, well, what Tories were going to do pen- to pensions, which they weren't, you know, or calling something a death tax when it was really, you know, all those kind of things that's happened in politics before. But this kind of justifying and legitimizing really quite weird, flaky, fringe things, you know, the entire p- conference sounded at times like it, had, you know, like a teenager that had spent too much time on YouTube, and you just think, this is weird.
2: I agree. The only danger with characterising it like that is it means you sometimes sort of overlook how dangerous it sort of is. very
4: dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. It's a form of radicalising the electorate.
2: So there's the stuff about meat taxes and seven bins and 15-minute cities and all of that. But the most chilling thing I heard all week was Suella Braverman talking about a hurricane mm-hmm. of immigration. Yeah. 'Cause we're we're beyond conservatism there, even in the in the awful form of Enoch Powell. That's B N P stuff is what And that she
4: is. had foreshadowed it earlier, you know, she'd foreshadowed it with that speech in Washington where I think, you know, when she started talking about immigration diluting the culture, you know, that that very much feels like the kind of language that we've heard. Uh, in the u.s you know there's hints here at sort of replacement theory all that kind of sort of really dangerous stuff and stuff that would have been shocking 10 years ago you know which we talked about last week on the program and you just all of those things together add up to something that isn't funny um however sort of ridiculous it looks from the outside and feels increasingly like the future of the party in defeat because what defeated parties do you know we've Seen it often enough by now, they don't generally respond to cataclysmic defeat by going, oh, well, you know, that's pulled us up short. I see what we've got wrong now. They generally double down or, you know, persevere with whatever it was that turned the electorate off them in the first place. And it takes them usually two defeats to work out that maybe that's not the answer. So you can very easily see the Conservative Party concluding if it loses next time, that it's because they weren't tough enough on immigration. They didn't, you know, they didn't cut taxes enough. They weren't right-wing enough. They weren't, you know, populist enough and doubling down on all that.
2: Yeah, and what it means sort of out in the real world, some of that stuff is terrifying. Because when I heard Suella Braverman, I mean, Suella Braverman's been banging this drum. She's banging it for a long time, but banging it very loudly for, as you say, for sort of two or three weeks. You know, this was obviously a premeditated sort of media blitz on Suella Braverman's part. And that gives license to awful, awful people who do awful, awful things, right? That's dog dirt through a family's letterbox, right? That's a racial attack somewhere, you know. This is the bit that never really gets talked about. in in, in terms of sort of goings on conference and all of that but that's what sprang to mind when i heard it talking in those terms and
4: it lowers the threshold of what's acceptable to say in public life it lowers the threshold of what's accepted to say online it lowers the threshold of what's accepted to say to someone in the street it lowers you know it makes things permissible and legitimate that government would no doubt condemn if they happened but you know it paves the way for all of that. And to hear it from someone who is, you know, in a position of such power and seniority makes it okay for absolutely anyone else. And it's quite, I do find it scary. And I think the scariest thing this week has been the sensation that there's not much now that people won't say. And there's not much now that people feel Inhibited about jumping on the bandwagon of, and and that is quite, yeah. you know, it's, it's breaks off time.
2: Yeah, obviously it's Labour Party conference next week in Liverpool. Politics Weekly UK will be going. How do you think the Labour Party will be feeling after that Conservative conference? Both in terms of how it may or may not respond to this flight to the to the awful political fringe that we've just talked about, but also you know in terms of Rishi Sunak and what he said and where it leaves his government electorally. How do you think the Labour
4: Party... I the think the initial feeling is quite chirpy. You know, I've been struck by how many Labour front benches have been normally, you know, you don't normally if you're in the Labour Party, you know, kind of retweet bits of Conservative speeches or terribly draw attention to what's happened during Conservative Party conference. But you've seen a lot of highlighting the weirdest, most off the wall, most kind of rabble rousing bits and just treating them as a kind of ridiculous ragbag spectacle. And I suspect that's what Keir Starmer will want to do next week. Just sort of stand back and go, what a shower, you know, this is all over the place. And this is the sort of last death throes of a party that doesn't, know what it's doing I think there's not anything there that that lays a huge elephant trap I don't think for the Labour Party when I mean, they probably agree with banning smoking that's fine you know that's not a big there's not that's not some big huge dividing line that they've been set
2: no but we talked about this sort of politics being dangerous in various ways and I suppose one of the things that slightly worries me is that part of its danger lies in the fact that with a polite veneer this might turn out to be effective, right? Because this is the country that voted for Brexit, right? This is the country where Nigel Farage was the most successful politician of his generation and so on. So, um, I don't know. If I was the Labour Party, I might be sitting there thinking, no matter what the polls say and the overwhelming odds of the Labour Party forming the next government, it's not quite in the bag yet. The point is, another term of this party that's revealed itself in this way this week is just beyond imagination
4: his never it's hardly Mr. Complacent you know he could be 50 points ahead and he'd still be worrying they would all fall apart before polling day so I don't think it's going to be complacent be. and actually if you look you know they'll have there's a little bit of a suggestion the polls might be narrowing a bit you know I'm sure there'll be a bounce for the Conservatives for conference there always is you know all that sort of thing fear is more for a few years down the line actually suppose because there's this temptation to assume that suppose you know the Tories lose and then they go mad in opposition and, you know, become the sort of a fully UKIP party kind of thing. Well, there's an assumption sometimes on the left that are like to think, well, it doesn't really matter. Who cares what they do in opposition? It doesn't, you know, in anything it's good, it might make them unelectable. But, you know, they're the one, <laughs> they'll be waiting in four or five years time if a Starmer government falls. And at that point, if Starmer fails to deliver in power against, let's face it, pretty, you know, pretty enormous odds, then what is left, you'd have, tried if you're a sort of desperate voter you've tried a conventional conservative government you've tried a conventional labor government neither of them gave you what you want well what's waiting in the wings then that's what scares me and we've all seen it happen in the US you know and we are we're not America it's different but you know that should be enough of a wake-up call I think
2: let's hope so anyway thank you for listening thank you for joining us Gabby
4: thank you for having me
2: and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics with the UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. On Sunday, the 8th of October at 5:30 p.m. In what may be the last Labour Party conference before the next general election, The Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, will be in conversation with the Shadow Secretary for Health and Social Care, Wes Streeting. She and one of Labour's leading shadow ministers will discuss the party's health policies and vision to create a a better and more equitable health system. They'll also talk about the Labour Party's wider plans for the country. Guardian readers can access the event via the live stream by registering for free. You can register at theguardian.com forward slash labour event. This episode of Politics Week the UK was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebterhaj and Nicole Jackson.
0: This is the Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?